0: Good morning, Trinity. Please join me as we read from the book of Ephesians. We'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And if you're reading from your Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 976. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful to Christ Jesus. Christ, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. This is God's word.:
1: Thanks be to God. Uh, when Mel was up here a second ago, he asked me how I was doing. I said, "Well, I, th- I think I got all of my tears out during the song, so we should be good." He's like, "There's always more tears." So <laughs> thank you for that, Mel. That's very comforting. Um, so in these final three weeks. I wanted to leave you with three final things where if you get these right, I really believe that the future of Trinity is as bright as ever. Kind of like a three-legged stool. All three of them, and you're stable. You take one out. uh, There's a lot less stability in there. And so a couple of weeks ago, I urged us all to preserve Trinity's unity. Remember, Jesus prayed for our unity. So don't disrupt what Jesus prayed for. Then last week, I urged us to treasure Trinity's gatherings. Remember, if you want to go far, you have to go together. And you have to gather together to go together. And then most importantly this morning, I'm going to leave you with this. Cling to Trinity's Christ. And so by the end of our time together this morning, I hope and I pray that you have an even tighter, white-knuckled grip on Jesus Christ and his finished work as your only hope In this life, and then on into the next life as well. To get us there, I want us to think deeply about two things this morning. The point of the Bible, what is the point of the Bible, and then what is the point of life? What is the point of you living and breathing even here today? So, if we were to flip to the last page of the Bible or to the last page of your story here on earth, whenever and however that wraps up, what would we find to be the purpose of it all? How does it get wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow? So this morning, I'm going to start by showing you the end of my sermon, at the beginning. And I'm going to show all of my cards by answering the two most fundamental questions that we have in the universe as human beings. First, what is the purpose and goal of the Bible? And then second, what is the purpose and goal of your life? And I actually think that the answer to both questions is the exact same thing, so that makes it easy for the answers here. Let me explain it this way. So At the very end of his life, or uh, more accurately, at the very end of his time here on earth, Jesus was hanging out with some friends after his resurrection and before his ascension, after resurrection, before ascension, and he uses his time to tell them that everything in history up to that point pointed to him. Luke 24, 27 says, so Jesus is walking along the street with his buds, and he's like, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself all the scriptures. Jesus is saying, that is all about me. All the scriptures are about Jesus. But I wonder if sometimes we begin to, to slip into this idea that at the end of the day, this book is about fixing me and my problems or fixing you and your problems. But Jesus tells his disciples that the reason they don't understand the prophets, like they had a really hard time understanding the first half of their Bibles. The reason that they didn't understand it is because they were missing the key that unlocked it all, unlocked the meaning of it all. And that key, says Jesus, is him. Jesus is the key to unlock the whole book even before Jesus shows up in the book. This is why my final word to you is going to be to hold to Jesus, cling to Jesus, come what may. You know, my time at Trinity here has seen a lot of change. Two highly controversial presidents to say the least, right? A global pandemic, multiple mass shootings, racial tension at its highest in decades, the nation of Israel brutally attacked, the planet on the brink of another world war. Closer to home here at Trinity, we've experienced the joy of weddings and the sobriety of funerals. Trinity people just in, or I guess Trinity Church peeps, OGs from way back in the day, you've experienced at least three different places that we've gathered since I've come to be the pastor here and many more gathering spaces before that. And since the merge, we've even gathered in two places in this very building, right? When we had our pews uh, being redone, we were downstairs for a few weeks, so much change. The biggest point of change probably is the first time I preached at Trinity, I had hair. And you can see what has happened to me over the time that we've been together. I don't know who to blame that on. No. No. Um, this room looks and feels and sounds and even smells a lot different than it did on Sunday, March 25th, 2018, our first Sunday together when Trinity Church and Faith Community Church together became Trinity Community Church. We've seen a lot of change together, but one thing that must not change for you going forward is that Jesus sits at the center of it all and Jesus sits on the throne of it all. So As we jump into the word today with the help of the late Tim Keller, let's see if the Bible is basically about you or if it's basically about Jesus. Here's what Tim asks. He says, is is David and Goliath really about you and how you can beat the giants in your life? Or is it about Jesus who took on the only giants who can really kill us and his victory is imputed to us? Who is it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when you find the answer is Jesus, you really begin to read the Bible anew. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just Risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's really not about you. It's about him. And so this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 1 here in verse 10. If you skip ahead to our text from today, he says, when he says that God's purpose, here's the quote, which he set forth in Christ is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This entire book is all about Jesus. Even before Jesus steps onto the stage. And Paul is saying that the entirety of our lives ought to be about Jesus too. He is saying that the entirety of history and our forever future is all bound up with this one man, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is why Trinity is here. Jesus is why you are here. It's your purpose, it's your end, your goal. Jesus is why I am here. Jesus is the gravitational pull of all of history. The centrifugal force of all time is pulling us to an inevitable end. The unity of all things in Jesus. Cosmic unity is the inevitable culmination of the universe. I hope you can get in on this gig because it's a good one with an amazing ending. So if you flip to the last page of your story of your life, or if you flip to the last page of your Bibles, this is what you will find. So Trinity, no matter what... No matter the cost, no matter the shame that comes with it, no matter the pain, cling to Jesus and do not let go. So having that established as our sort of foundational launch point this morning, let's put on our grammar nerd glasses this morning for a second, okay? Reach back into eighth grade English class and see if you can remember your prepositions. We had some kind of song that addressed our prepositions and I won't sing it for you now. I don't remember how it went. That's how I remembered them back then. But look especially here at the first six verses uh, at the prepositions in and through, and I'll throw them on screen for you. Verse 1, faithful in Christ. Verse 3, blessed in Christ. Verse 4, chosen in Christ. Verse 5, adopted through Christ. And then verse 6, we are graced in Christ, in the beloved, which is just like a nickname for Jesus. So if this church is to be known for anything going forward, let it be known that you cling to this Christ. And just look at all the advantages that this brings. We are made faithful by Christ. We access the Spirit's blessing through Christ. We are only chosen and in God's family because of Christ. We are brought into the family on account of Christ, and we are given the grace of God by the virtue of Christ, as opposed to our own virtue, earning it from God. So Jesus is the singular reason any of us have any sort of hope. So if you were to just like flip these bullet points of their opposite in your mind— Think think about it like this. Without Christ, we are faithless. Without Christ, we get no blessing. Without Christ, God would not choose us. Without Christ, we are orphans. And then finally, without Christ, we are without grace. Our hopes are utterly bound up with this one man, Jesus Christ. Do you love that man? I hope you love that man and you will cling to that man from now until your dying breath. To know him is to love him. To know him is to be obsessed with him and orient everything in your life to him. To know him is to cling to him, come what may. Because to not know him is to be justly condemned by the Father, justly condemned for the sins that we have committed. So here's why you should cling to Jesus, because he is the source of your salvation. It's the first thing we see today. Jesus is the source of your salvation. So, Paul starts here by telling us the source of the blessing of our salvation. Why is it so good and where does it come from? He calls it a spiritual blessing. This is kind of complex, uh, but if you look in verse three, you can see we can see who has the blessings. They are in Christ. We can see where the blessings are, they are in the heavenly places. You can check me in, your, in these first three verses if you want. We can see how we get the blessings. They are applied to us by the Spirit of God. That's why they're called spiritual blessings. And we can see what the blessings are. God chose us to be holy, God predestined us to be adopted. Those are what the blessings are. I don't know about you, when I, but when I hear this phrase, heavenly places, I instinctively think up there somewhere are where my blessings are, right? In the heavenly places. But this is not a geographical place that Paul is referring to here, it's a spiritual place. It's the unseen spiritual world. No less real than the world that you and I inhabit right now, the one that we can see and taste and touch and feel, but it is unseen to the human eye. Now understand, if you aren't a Christian this morning or if you're a new Christian, this may all sound like super spooky to you or like odd to think about, but this is the claim of the Christian Bible, that there is another unseen world. And if you think about it, this is not all that out of the ordinary for us, even as human beings. Uh, there are th- some things that we believe uh, to be true that we cannot see, like gravity, for instance. So that phrase, in the heavenly places, is used five times in this short letter, five times. So it's clearly like a meaningful phrase to Paul. It, it meant something significant to him. And what is the point? None of us have been to heaven yet. Why is Paul saying that we have access now to the blessings of the heavenly places, that spiritual place, before we ever set foot on heavenly soil? How can we have the blessings now when we're not even there yet? I think we can get the answer if we compare the way that Paul uses this phrase in other places by comparing Ephesians 1 verse 20 and then Ephesians 2 verse 6. I'll throw them on screen for you. Here's chapter 1 verse 20. Kind of in the middle of it, we're dropping in that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. then skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 6. God raised us up with Jesus and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So do you see the progression of thought that Paul is making here? In 1, Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus sat down in these heavenly places, having completed his work. Takes a seat. But a little later in chapter 2, verse 6, we get to take a seat with Jesus because for all of those of us who are in Christ our work is finished just like his work is finished this is what it means to be in Christ it means we get the being the benefits we get the benefits of Christ being in Christ means you get the benefits of being Christ himself personalize this just for a moment if you can slide your name in there i josh get the benefits of the eternal God because I am bound up with him through faith in Christ Jesus. I get all that God gets. I get all that the son of God gets because of my faith in Jesus. Paul is saying that whatever blessing Jesus got when he sat down on his throne is what we get through our relationship with Jesus. We get the same treatment. We've talked about this idea a lot through the years, this idea of a seated Christ, especially way back a few years ago when we were in the book of Hebrews. Remember, there was one piece of furniture that you would never find in the Old Testament temple. Anybody remember what it was? Chair, Chair. yeah, totally. It's been a few years since Hebrews. But there was one piece of furniture never found in in the Old Testament temple, and that was the chair. Why? Because the work was never done. People kept sinning, so priests kept sacrificing. No chair. But then the ultimate sacrifice steps up to the plate and he just, he knocks it out of the universe. He was crucified and when he was done, he pulled up a chair and he sat down. For the first time in history ever, a priest sat down in the presence of God in the temple. That's an important image because the work to get to God is done. That's the point of that imagery for us. And according to Ephesians 2, we right now, those of us that are in Jesus, are sitting with the Father, spiritually speaking, because our work is done. Because his work is done, our work is done. Paul is saying that in Christ, our work is done, and there's nothing left for us to do in order to gain God's favor. Enough favor for him to let us into the family and let us into his home. It's all done for us. This is why we must, why you must, cling to Christ no matter what. Only hope in life and death. This is the spiritual blessing of your salvation. You don't have to clamor for God's affection or attention. You don't have to plummet into shame when you know you've failed him. Jesus stands in your place as the perfect living substitute, which leads us to our second point this morning. Jesus enables God's choice in your salvation. Jesus enables God's choice of of saving you. Look again at that phrase in verse four. It says, God chose us, In him, before the foundation of the world. This means that without him, we wouldn't have been chosen. Without Jesus, you and I don't get access to the Father. And it also means, if you think about it sort of uh, like on a timeline, it means that you were chosen by God before you even existed. Before the foundation of the world, you were chosen. And it also means that God chose you despite you, not because of you. God chose you, this is humbling for all of us in here. God chose you despite you and not because of you. So, before we go any further, I do want to say that this is like one of those moments when we are delving into the deepest mysteries that make God God, like how man's responsibility and God's sovereignty somehow interact with each other. When we try to unravel these things, we should tread very carefully. Sometimes you just need to nod and like let God be God. <clears throat> Eugene Peterson says it like this. God is who he is. We don't figure God out. We don't explain God, we don't define God. We worship God. We worship God who is as he is. We don't second guess God. We don't evaluate God on a scale of 1 to 10. We don't presume to tell God how to be God. When we worship God, we let God be God. This demands absolute humility. We become aware that we are in the presence of a reality that cannot be used, cannot be packaged, cannot be grasped on any other terms than are given to us by God. These are super humbling, flattening, but true words. And this is how we approach this talk of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So can I just encourage us for these few minutes, let's, let's set aside our questions for just a minute about how these things work together. Let's stop our calculating and just step into the wonder of it all. Let's adore God for this mysterious majesty rather than trying to do all the math, addition, subtraction, trying to figure it all out. Look at the beginning of verse 4 there. God chose his people, and so God looks out over time, and he looks out over space, and he chooses, the text says, those among us who would become Christians. And so this flattens us all in this way. Your salvation did not begin with your choice to believe in Jesus. Now, your choice was real, it was necessary, it was a means to your salvation, but it didn't begin there. Your salvation began before creation when God planned his redemption story and when he chose you to be his own son or daughter in his family. This should give us rock solid assurance as Christians. If you're a Christian, God chose you, not based on what you would or wouldn't do in your future, in your life. That's a breath of fresh air right there. He chose you in Christ. You know, we've probably all felt the sting of not being chosen for something that we really wanted at one point or another in our lives. Maybe you wanted a particular job in your company and someone else got picked over you. Maybe someone else got the raise that you wanted or you felt that you deserved, Maybe you were always picked last on the kickball field in elementary school, and you just have some PTSD from that. Some of you in here are not surprised at this at all, what I'm about to tell you, because I've told you before. But but there is definitely one thing that we are definitely not going to do before we leave town. Have a yard sale. We are not having a yard sale to sell any of our junk to anyone. Yard sales make me super anxious. Very, very anxious. I kid you not, this is the true story. Miriam can attest to this. When we have had yard sales in the past, I cannot tolerate watching people take the Tommy Hilfiger tie that I bought in 1999, look at it, pick it up, set it back down on the table, and walk away and reject my stuff. It just, it feels, it feels bad. Like I had a miss in 1999 on the stylistic choice that I made on that Hilfiger tie. So, what do I do? I go inside the house. Uh, This happened at a a real yard sale in real life in real Duncan, South Carolina. Um, I went inside the house um, because I couldn't take that Hilfiger tie being set down on the table anymore. And I went inside the front room and I closed the blinds and I peeked through them like this as I watched people look at my stuff and reject it. It kills me to be rejected. Uh, That's a sin problem in my own life, I'm sure. Not being chosen for something we want makes us feel like we are worthless that we're good for nothing, that because we have been rejected, we must have no merit. But here we find in this text that we were chosen by the cosmic God of the universe, but we were not chosen on account of our own merit. The Bible tells us that we are made righteous through faith, but how does our faith in Jesus make us righteous in God's sight? It's because in God's economy, Faith unites you to Christ. Faith unites you with Christ. And it unites you so closely that there aren't two hands, there are one. There aren't two people, there are one. So much so that when God looks down and sees you, he looks down and he sees Jesus. You are in Christ, which means you are so safe. Christ becomes your righteousness and your only access to the Father. So the righteousness that's like down underneath your justification, the righteousness beneath your justified state, is not something worked out by you, but lived out by Jesus. We talked about this last week, how often we like to skip ahead to the cross, to Calvary, but we forget Bethlehem and everything between Bethlehem and Calvary. Those 33 years where Jesus is earning up the righteousness in your place that you don't have to offer to the Father. Without Jesus, you would not be chosen. You weren't good enough to make the team, and neither was I. This is the utter humiliation of our salvation, but it's the glory of it too. It is entirely independent of you and all dependent on Jesus. You can take a, a deep breath right there and be thankful. It's independent of you and dependent on Jesus, and that's why you're safe. And that's why I'm safe. God can't unchoose you or won't unchoose you based on what you do or don't do because he never chose you based on what you do or don't do in the first place. He chose you based on what Jesus did and didn't do. He chose you in Him, in Christ. Your position before God has been decisively settled simply by being in Christ. Nothing can threaten that. So cling to this man, come what may. The moment each of our girls exited the womb, they had won the hearts of both Miriam and me. It was not because they were so attractive, they were not. I'm sorry. They were covered in goo and they were screaming. Uh, They had not yet obeyed any of our commands. They had not performed well at a concert or at a ball game. They hadn't grown up to be doctors or lawyers and bought us a vacation home at the beach. They had won our favor without doing a a single positive act. We set our love on them simply because they were ours. We loved them in much the same way God has set his love on you because you're his, not because of anything you've done. Sit in that for a second, Christian. Rest in that. God adopted you because he wanted to, because it brought him pleasure to do so. You, as long as you are in Christ, are God's pleasure. Because of Jesus, we could say, you bring a smile to God's face. What? I, Josh, am God's good pleasure because of Jesus. I really needed this to settle into my soul this week. And for a few sweet moments, it did. I am God's pleasure. And I hope that settles into your soul this morning. If you are in Jesus, you are God's pleasure, and you bring a smile to his face because of Jesus. And so we cling to that man, Jesus. In verse 9, we see two words that may on the surface seem like the same thing, but they are not. We didn't make it this far in our scripture reading today, but um, it's the word will and the word purpose, if you see verse nine there. So if Paul says that God does what he wills and God does what he purposes, it might sound like he's saying the same thing in two different ways. But there's more nuance here that is not caught super well by the English language. The word will there like the original intent there is kind of just uh, raw intention from God. It's what, it's what he wants. It's what he wills. But then that word purpose in verse 9, that's a different word altogether. It's, it's like it's gloriously different than that word will. The meaning of that word is, is more like good pleasure. God's good pleasure. So we might just say it like this if you look at verse 9. Actually, I'll put it on screen. Making known to us the mystery of what he wants according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ. So God takes pleasure in you because of Jesus. This is really meaningful stuff right here. When you've messed up and you've messed up bad, when you have failed someone, when you have sinned against your spouse or your kids, when you become a disappointment to someone, this is like a warm blanket to put on. I may be broken, I may be a disappointment to some of you. My life may be a mess, but I bring someone pleasure. It's someone no less than the cosmic God of the universe because of Jesus. And here's an important point to note about this. Whenever you ask yourself, why me, Lord? Why am I the one believing, but not those people out there on the block or the next block or the next block? The answer is never that you were smarter or that I was smarter. Never because you just lucked out to be born into a Christian family. Never because you were just humble enough to receive the message when others weren't. The only answer is because God took pleasure in sliding the credit card of his son on your behalf to pay for the debt that you owed. When it comes to your salvation, you brought nothing and you bring nothing to the table. And neither do I, and that's okay, because Jesus does. It's humbling but glorious, because this means we can rest easy, knowing that we are loved and valued, like wildly loved and valued, taken pleasure in by God himself because of Jesus' work in our place on our behalf. Trinity, cling to Jesus. Finally, this morning, number three, Jesus is the destiny of your salvation. Jesus is the destiny of your salvation. I think uh, one of the most iconic movie lines of the last 30 or 40 years comes from the lips of George McFly to the ears of Lorraine Baines. McFly walks into Lou's Cafe and he orders a milk. Chocolate. You guys remember? man, I really expected that to go different on my last Sunday. But what would my last Sunday be without a joke that I make that no one laughs at, okay? It's from Back to the Future. Okay. Then he walks up, McFly walks up to Lorraine, and he boldly proclaims, Lorraine, my density has brought me to you. (laughs) Thank you, whoever that was. And confused, Lorraine is like, "Uh, what? Mm, Oh, what I meant to say is, I'm George, George McFly. I'm your density. Uh, I'm your destiny, is what he means to say. For George... He felt strongly that Lorraine was George's destiny. For Christians, our certain destiny is the holiness that looks like Jesus. That is our end goal. Our destiny is to look like Jesus. God chose us to this certain end, to a certain destiny, but he did not choose me because I was holy or good, but so that I might become holy and good. There is a holiness that is given to us. That's the righteousness imputed to us by Jesus. But there is also a holiness that is pursued. Paul wants to convince us of the importance of both. Gifted holiness and the kind of holiness that we pursue with our everyday choices to become a little bit more like Jesus progressively each step of each day. Jesus grants us the holiness that we need to get to God by his perfect life. But then there's still a certain holiness that God is calling us to pursue. He says, be holy as I am holy. Make choices to be a little bit more like Jesus than you are each day. And so we are, we are wooed towards something here. It's a family resemblance. Look at what comes next there in verse 5. He says, we have been predestined for adoption. Adoption through Jesus Christ. In other words, God draws us into the family and he wants us to look like his family he wants people to, to look at the way we live and be like, ah, oh, that, that man, that woman must be a part of God's family. They bear the family resemblance. This, this is why I say that Jesus is the destiny of our salvation. We're supposed to look more and more like him over time. So think of a family right now that you know has adopted. There are some in our church right now. And think about how they treat their adopted children. I bet they do their best their dead-level best to treat their biological children in the same way that they treat their adopted children with equal respect and equal value. So imagine the perfect father doing this, God the Father. He does this impeccably. He treats us, his adopted kids, like he treats his son, Jesus. The adopted kids get treated the same. This means that he would no sooner turn you away than he would turn Jesus, his son, away. That is a place of value and wonder what have you done that's so bad how have you disappointed god it's not too much it's not too much he turned his face away from jesus while jesus died for that sin so that he could set his affectionate gaze on you and never look away from you again because you are cloaked in the righteousness of jesus by faith in jesus Jesus has won for you God's affectionate gaze on you forever. So cling to Jesus. A few years back, we had a really powerful morning here together talking about adoption from James 1. And here's one of the things that Jody Young, Jody, I think you're getting my last quote here. Is she in here? Oh, she's missing it. Well, you can tell her. Getting my last quote ever here on screen. But here's what she said about her adoption journey, and it just, it wrecked me. She said, it was there in those toughest moments, feeling irrationally angry with a tiny raging child whose whole world had been turned upside down, that the real picture of what God did in adopting me came into focus. I wasn't some sweet, endearing little kid who came running into God's arms and embraced him. I was, I am, a kicking, raging willfulness who thought I was doing just fine without God's help. It was only through God's relentless pursuing love and grace that I was adopted into his family. He called me his child long before I began to act like I was. That is so powerful, and you can tell Jody that that'll preach. Thank you for that word, Jody. He calls us his kids even when we don't act like his kids, and do you know why? It's not because God is like ushy gushy He's not like flexy on his law. He's got no give in him. He's perfectly holy. It's not because he gets tired like some of us parents do and we get a little lazy on correcting poor behavior because we just can't do it again, correct that same thing again. No, we are safe with the Father because we are in Christ. So cling to him. Jesus gets you into the f- family on account of his behavior and not on account of your behavior. I love that man. I hope you do, and I hope you cling to him, Trinity. He's your only way in. And your adoption is not based on your worth. It's rooted in God's glorious, providential, eternal, eternal purposes and grace. And this means, this means that your adoption is not fragile. Like You ain't getting kicked out of the family. God will not adopt and then find out that you are not worthy and then renege on the deal. Nah, you are in, and you are safe you're not in based on what you've done this is unshakable so cling to christ in verse five as we wrap here we learn that god predestined us for adoption and it's not like he just looked out over the pages of space and time and saw us and thought yeah that is a good one i'll take that one no not that one but i will take this one Uh, Over the years here at Trinity, I have tried really hard to get into, like, the fantasy football league here of the Trinity guys. Um, And I've tried and and mostly just failed. I have never been any good at fantasy football, and I was so bad that eventually they ended up kicking me out of the league anyway and not asking me to play. Um, I got beat almost every week, probably every week, uh, and I could never figure out why. And it was very frustrating, irritating, humiliating. Before the season starts, if you know anything about fantasy football, the league sits down with these spreadsheets out in front of them. Um, The last one I was at was at uh, the Nuts house out back there, and that was probably like three or four years ago. That's how long it's been since I've been invited into the league. But before the season starts, you all sit out there around the table, around a fire probably, and you have these sheets out, and, and these sheets kind of predict how much points each player is expected to make on any given week. And so you're trying to pick the players that have the most predictive points that are associated with them. And so you pick, pick your team based on expected output. I want you to know that it is not the same with the father. And for this, we should celebrate. It's not like the father and the son and the spirit were sitting like in eternity past at their annual fantasy Christian draft and thinking, man, that John Riggs guy, he can sling it on the drums. I want that guy in my family. Lord, and that Justin Darris guy, that guy has a head of hair. Think how many people will come to Jesus with that. I'll grab him. No, there's nothing about any of us that makes us worthy. Nothing that makes us worthy of being adopted into the family. We were made worthy of adoption because of our older brother and only because of our older brother. It was only possible because of verse 5 says it comes through Jesus Christ. We get the ridiculous privilege of being invited into the family of God because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. So cling to that man. And as I close here, I guess for the second time, I've already said we're closing. But as I close for the second time, I want to rehearse something with you that I've shared with some of you before. And I'm sharing it again because it's the last chance I'll get. To use an Eagles illustration without people looking at me sideways, all right? Some of you in here are total Eagles freaks, like crazy fanatics, like uniquely passionate fans. That's the one thing I'll always love and remember about this city, like their sports fans are nuts and it's awesome. And I know that you're, you're crazy and awesome, not because you invite me over to watch Eagles games, which you do on Sundays. I know that you are crazy fanatical fans because you invite me over to watch one particular Eagles game that ended more than five years ago. And you invite me over and over and over again to watch this thing. Some of you in here have watched that Super Bowl 10 or 15 times since the final whistle blew on February 4th, 2018. That is fanaticism right there, full stop. I think it's beautiful and great. Here's the crazy thing, the actual crazy thing about that kind of behavior. You already know the end of the game. You know it. You can Google the end of the game, but you still watch the game. If you can take yourself back to that night, on February 4th, 2018, I had the flu. I remember it well, so I couldn't hang out with any of you guys and watch it. I was very bummed about that. But I do remember very well the stress late in that game. Take, for instance, Tom Brady's touchdown pass to Gronk to take the lead early in the fourth quarter. The Pats go up 33 to 32, and it looks like another Brady-Belichick miracle. If you don't know any of these names, don't sweat it. Just know that the Eagles are losing close to the end of the game. But do you know why we feared this miracle comeback by the Patriots over the Eagles? It's because in that moment, we didn't know the end yet. But now, when we watch the reruns, we know the end. For all of you rerun watchers, how much stress do you watch the replay of the fourth quarter with now? Zip. Why? Because you know how the story ends. There's no fear in our hearts that this will be the one time the replay gets it wrong. That somehow in this alternate universe, the upside down, the Patriots are going to win this time. Why don't you fear that? Because we know how it ends. We've seen how this goes, and we've seen it 15 times now, right? Eagles win, Patriots lose, and it's inevitable every single time you watch. In a replay of that game, in a replay of the game, in the fourth quarter, the scoreboard shows that the Eagles are losing. You look at the scoreboard on the screen, it says they're down by one with not much time left. But in reality, the reality is right now that they've already won even when the scoreboard on my TV says they're losing. friends, this is what we've got to hold to while the world is panicking and coming apart at the seams. God has already put everything in subjection to Jesus, and he left nothing outside of Jesus's control. And in the end, when the world's clock strikes zero, God will have brought all things under Jesus's subjection and everything into unity with him. Even though at present, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him and in unity around him. The scoreboard looks rough right now. But the victory of pure Jesus centric unity is already in the books. It's already done. You can look it up. I know how the story ends. And the result of this unity in Jesus is sure Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the end matters. When things appear like they're slipping out of control, the end matters. When the suffering intensifies the end matters. When there are more questions than there are answers, the end matters. When f- friendships have a separation, uh, a geographical separation, the end matters because our separation will be brought together in a glorious unity one day in King Jesus. The end matters even more than the present matters. The hinge of history pivots on Jesus. He's the point of it all. Jesus is Inevitable. So the undertow of your redemption in mine is, is pulling us all toward this glorious, inevitable end. And we only are able to get in on this glory because of Jesus. Jesus, to circle back to the beginning, is why Trinity is here. Jesus is why you are here and why I am here. Jesus is the gravitational pull of history. And the centrifugal force of all time is pulling us to an inevitable end, the unity of all things in Jesus, which means that we say goodbye today, we will be together again, celebrating raucously around the throne of King Jesus. Cling to Jesus, come what may. Lou, will you come pray for us, brother?
2: Oh Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, after hearing what your spirit has said through your word, through your servant, Josh, we stand in awe and wonder and worship and humility and brokenness, but joy to realize that in eternity past, you called us to be your children, to set every spiritual blessing upon us in your son Jesus, though we had done nothing to earn that and everything to earn your condemnation. Hallelujah. But Lord, not just that, but you have reminded us this morning how there is an eternal destiny where we will be the people that you created us and redeemed us to be fully, without any barriers, without any tears, without any sorrows anymore. So, Father, we thank you for this A to Z, this alpha to omega picture of all your blessings, all your love, and yet, to be reminded, it's not about us. It's about Jesus, the blazing center, the gravitational pull of our lives. And so, Father, would you convict us of those areas where we are resisting that pull where we are foolishly charting our own course instead of saying, I surrender all to you. Lord, there may be some here today who are clinging to themselves and have never surrendered. We pray that your spirit would convict and we would joyfully bow down and say, you are the Lord. You are the Redeemer. You are King. And your work is finished. And in some way we cannot understand, but we gladly accept You have chosen us in Christ to enjoy all that. So Lord, may we worship you. May we live for you. May we be encouraged and built up. Use your word now. Feed us, nurture us, challenge us, and encourage us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.